Hi and welcome to this latest episode from 1914-1918war.com. Please take a moment before you get going on this to uh, subscribe to the Substack newsletter at 1914-1918.substack.com. That's where you'll get the weekly newsletter with a roundup of World War I news from around uh, the internet and occasional longer articles. In this episode, we're continuing our reading of Five Months at Anzac, the story of the Australian uh, medical services at Gallipoli. We're up to chapter 10. Everything you hold for files is at stake. Chapter 10. The Armistice. On the 23rd of May, anyone looking down the coast could see a man on Gaba Tepe waving a white flag. He was soon joined by another, occupied in a like manner. Soon officers came into the ambulance and asked for the loan of some towels. We gave them two, which were pinned together with safety pins. White flags don't form part of the equipment of Australia's army. Seven mounted men had been observed coming down from Gaba Tepe, and they were joined on the beach by our four. The upshot was that one was brought in blindfolded to General Birdwood. Shortly after, we heard it had been announced that a truce had been arranged for the following day in order to bury the dead. The following morning, Major Millard and I started out from our right and walked up across the battlefield. It was a stretch of country between our lines and those of the Turks and was designated no man's land. At the extreme right, there was a small farm. The owner's house occupied part of it and was just as the man had left it. Our guns had knocked it about a good deal. In close proximity was a field of wheat in which there were scores of dead Turks. As these had been dead anything from a fortnight to three weeks, their condition may be better imagined than described. One body I saw was lying with the leg shattered. He had crawled into a depression in the ground and lay with his great coat rolled up for a pillow. The stains on the ground showed that he had bled to death, and it can only be conjectured how long he lay there before death relieved him of his sufferings. Scores of the bodies were simply riddled with bullets. Midway between the trenches, a line of Turkish sentries were posted. Each was in a natty blue uniform with gold braid and top boots, and all were done up to the nines. Each stood by a white flag on a pole stuck in the ground. We buried all the dead on our side of this line, and they performed a similar office for those on their side. Stretchers were used to carry the bodies, which were all placed in large trenches. The stench was awful, and many of our men wore handkerchiefs over their mouths in their endeavour to escape it. I counted 2,000 dead Turks. One I judged to be an officer of rank, for the bearers carried him shoulder-high down a gully to the rear. The ground was absolutely covered with rifles and equipment of all kinds, shell cases and caps and ammunition clips. The rifles were all collected and the bolts removed to prevent their being used again. Some of the Turks were lying right on our trenches, almost in some of them. The Turkish sentries were peaceable-looking men, stolid in type and of the peasant class mostly. 
We fraternised with them and gave them cigarettes and tobacco. Some Germans were there, but they viewed us with malignant eyes. When I talked to Colonel Pope about it afterwards, he said that the Germans were a mean lot of beggars. Why, said he, most indignantly, they came and had a look into my trenches. I asked, what did you do? He replied, well, I had a look at theirs. Chapter 11. Torpedoing of the Triumph The day after the armistice, at fifteen minutes after noon, I was in my dugout when one of the men exclaimed that something was wrong with the Triumph. I ran out and was in time to see the fall of the water sent up by the explosive. It was a beautifully calm day, and the ship was about a mile and a quarter from us. She had a decided list towards us, and it was evident that something was radically wrong. With glasses one could see the men lined up in two ranks as if on parade, without the least confusion. Then two destroyers went over and put their noses on each side of the big ship's bows. All hands from the Triumph marched aboard the destroyers. She was gradually heeling over and all movables were slipping into the sea. One of the destroyers barked three or four shots at something which we took to be a submarine. In fifteen minutes the Triumph was keel up, the water spurting from her different vent pipes as it was being expelled by the imprisoned air. She lay thus for seventeen minutes, gradually getting lower and lower in the water, when quietly her stern rose and she slipped underneath, not a ripple remaining to show where she had sunk. I have often read of the vortex caused by a ship sinking, but as far as I could see, there was in this case not the slightest disturbance. It was pathetic to see this beautiful ship torpedoed and in 32 minutes at the bottom of the sea. I believe the only lives lost were those men injured by the explosion. Meanwhile, five destroyers came up from Hellas at terrific speed, the water curling from their bows. They and all the other destroyers circled round and round the bay, but the submarine lay low and got off. Her commander certainly did his job well. That brings us to the end of chapter 11. Hope you've enjoyed this episode, and I'll see you at the next one. Bye-bye.